It's Zacklingly Chichi. I'm so popular, and we have a monstrosity of an episode on, a, on our hands with an extremely special guest who I'm so humbled and overjoyed to have on. Who are you? <laughs> um, I'm Dana, and um, I'm a nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, We're Donna. here to discourse. What are you Hi. doing? Uh, I'm talking to you. <laughs> You are. Um, okay, what time yeah. is it? Like, I want to know like, uh, what it looks like. Uh, okay. Um, it's uh, almost 5 p.m. And uh, I was just uh, reading Foucault's History of Sexuality and uh, drinking multiple coffees and vaping and waiting for this to happen. That's it. That's my day. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. Donna, why do yeah. you follow me? Uh, well, you popped up on the algorithm on Twitter, and I started listening to I'm So Popular, and I loved it so much. And um, I love your aesthetic and the topics you discuss and everything. And I listened also to uh, your appearances on Twink Revolution, and I loved them too. So yeah, I've been following your work for a while. And we've, we've had an episode together talking about the piano teacher and uh, abjection. That was amazing. Yeah, such a a sublime experience honestly and when mm. i i can't believe it was the algorithm that put us together that really <laughs> warms my heart that twitter isn't a soulless monster after all yes <laughs> because when we did our episode on pleasure helmet about the piano teacher and objection i mm. was just so shocked honestly about what an easy rapport like it was so easy to talk yeah. to you and I found that just like in our conversation, we have like a very similar um, sort of worldview that I, yes. I really value. And since then, I've gone back and listened to every episode of Pleasure Helmet, even though I'd, I'd heard quite a bit before then. And your podcast is one of the most underrated, <laughs> unsung pieces of art that I think is existing in this sort of like podcasting renaissance. Thank you. I'm melting in my chair right now from <laughs> feeling so shy. Thank you so much. What was your inspiration behind starting the show? Um, well, I usually have interesting conversations with people um, on the internet and in real life, my friends. We would, we would say really beautiful things. And I always thought, what, did we, what would it be like to have that somehow immortalized and have like other people listen to it too? And that's how it started. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I felt the, the same impulse when I started I'm So Popular because that's really what my initial goal was, was just to relive those sublime and glistening moments of a beautiful yes. conversation. Yes, exactly. It's uh, It gets really lonely when we are just like watching films or reading books or thinking about politics alone. So if you have... To, uh, if you have another person talking to you and then like other people listening to that conversation, it's just it becomes bigger and amplified. So you, I don't know, it's just it's a fight against loneliness somehow. That's how I see it. That's beautiful. <laughs> Podcasting is a fight against loneliness. and It is, yeah. Perhaps that's why everyone, including myself, had to start a podcast during the, like, the covid era or whatever yes everyone is starting podcasts it's becoming uh easier for everyone to make it yeah i mean but, it is really easy like you buy your usb mic you yeah. you can upload it anywhere you don't even have to put it out on like official 
uh, forums or whatever. And I love that it's like the only sort of like DIY art that is even possible anymore. Yes, definitely. Because everything from music production, what was like once bedroom pop is like now supersized and produced by 40 people in a lab and the independent film doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. (laughs) But podcasting, Um, we have that for us. Yeah, and somehow maybe because like everyone is tired of looking at images all the time. So it's just easier to have something to listen to, you know, because we just we're always like looking at content and so much visual shit. So, yeah. Um, Constantly seeing it's nauseating. I get those terrifying iPhone alerts where it's like, here's how much you looked at your phone last week. And oh God. <laughs> it went down 15%. It was still like six hours. And I was like, okay, that's not so bad. But then I recalled that the rest of that time was like spent lying on my side with my computer open. Exactly. I'm, I'm always looking at some screen. It's, it's impossible for me to just disconnect. Yeah. I mean, I can't even like complain about it or anything because yeah. it is just like a part of my biology now to exactly. like, <laughs> be in the internet at all times. Yes. Like, whenever my phone vibrates, it's just a part of my human organism now. Yeah. Um, sometimes it gives me anxiety. Like, I wish I just don't have the phone anymore. Because when you have a phone, you feel that everyone wants something from you all the time, right? Yeah. Like, everyone can find you and just ask you to do something or ask for your presence. So it's just, yeah, we're just, uh, I don't know what Foucault would think about this, but yeah. I don't know either, but I do know that at least we have each other to cling to <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. ocean of images. And why yes. I brought you on today is for a really special project I'm undertaking, which is to read the entire history of sexuality by Foucault. And we're mm. going to pair it with the filmography of one of my all-time favorite directors, Sono Shion. And... Mm. This project is beginning on, uh, today's what, April 6th? Yeah. Yeah, it's raining, it's black outside right now, and as uh, we read this slowly over time, we're going to bring more people together to discuss the philosophy and the films, and there's no set date of when this is going to end. Mm. We could be finishing this at any time. I don't know who is coming on to talk about Mm -hmm. it with us, but... I'm so inspired by the way that you value conversations around philosophy and art and sort of the way that meeting a stranger and convening about it can create like beautiful art in itself. So I'm really excited to like see what this turns into as we go on. Me too. Really excited. Yeah. And of course... I brought you on to be sort of the foundational basis for this because (laughs) I listen to so many podcasts that like brief or like, you know, skim on philosophy or it comes up and I always get an unemotional and boring, (laughs) very placid feel from it. Me too. Yeah. Me too. That's the only form of a podcast that I don't listen to. Like, I love your podcast because... You talk about philosophy and art, but from a cultural point of view. And 
it's just very rich and layered and fun and readable and inspiring and it's just like a fresh conversation but uh, most like philosophy podcasts and intellectual podcasts are just like saying the same stuff in a like they're summarizing it or uh, yeah it's boring it's like a wikipedia page yeah it's exactly <laughs> like that and it's so distressing that witnessing it and having to experience the droning mundanity of that kind of discourse around philosophy is mm-hmm. really capable of turning people entirely away from it and stopping yes. people from experiencing which i find really tragic yeah definitely yeah because we were we were talking a little before we started about our sort of like relationship to reading philosophy which is something i've only seriously begun in earnest very recently but it gives you a grandiosity and like huge primordial like ancient cultural force that sits behind you as you're doing the most boring stupid shit and it it gives you like this uh capacity to feel like you are like the human like you are the result of all of this thinking and it it lends me a lot of dumb power when i'm like sitting around definitely definitely i agree like even uh, how we experience space and time and and everything becomes different how we experience love and well once you read uh philosophy it just adds this like really rich layer to your life And and i think that film and even pop music in a sense, has this uh, ability to, like, it has this kind of depth. So, yeah, it's. I agree that we should read philosophy and literature and that stuff, but I also like the layer of film and culture that also makes you think about the same philosophical questions. That's why I would, like, talk about, for example, um, the idea of the human and uh, intelligence and uh, AI and that stuff by... by just simply watching Blade Runner, for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, like this film, Blade Runner alone, just raises all of these questions about what, what, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be conscious? What, you know, all of these different questions about freedom. And oh, yeah, so, so yeah, uh, it's important to read philosophy because everything we consume as culture is related to philosophy. Yes, absolutely, because all art, whether intense to or not, is its own sort of like broken form of philosophy. And yeah. I think good art, whether it intends to or not, sort of serves like that same purpose, like you said. Yeah, exactly. And another reason that I can only speak to you about these books is is because I, mm-hmm. I think we share sort of a an ethos about sexuality. And it came up yes. when we were discussing... Um, the piano teacher together but for me sex is among like that sort of philosophy like philosophy based thinking like one of the things that pilots my life like I live only to be objectified and to feel like uh, (laughs) the deepness of sexuality and recently this year I've been trying to read more and watch more film that sort of explains why that is to me and like dig Mm. through my body to find out like why I can't live without sexuality and yes it started with Deleuze who I love yeah 
I and, love to lose too. Yeah, oh like the oh my god, reading coldness and cruelty was like the first like step into seeing this bigger portrait behind like the weird like biological impulses I have towards sex. Yes, um, that's also I relate to this so much. Uh, um, I just feel that from an early age. And especially when I started being online and like constructing an internet identity, which is also, it has its own layers. I just felt that I'm always gravitating towards things that have this kind of, as you said, like uh, sexual nature, but um, in a way that, I, yeah, I want to understand why I want to be objectified, why I want everything to be erotic. And I express everything erotically. And I feel that this is the right way to do it, but not in the, mundane uh i don't know like right now it's everything is so stale in the way we express eroticism that's why i gravitate towards philosophy and literature that is somehow older um like i think just you know everything can be erotic and this idea has been has become it's seen like dangerous i think that everything Absolutely. can be erotic yeah it's one of the greatest cultural forces at the moment is to ensure that all sexuality is put into a very confined and codified existence. Whereas I always feel like my own like taste in sex is like constantly trying to topple and destroy me and like break out of yeah. a, every sort of one of those lines. And yeah. reading philosophy like kind of gives me like the the structure and the ideas to make it less of some sort of like a primal creepy thing that I've inherited from generations of humanity and more of mm. a artistic experience. Yeah, exactly. It's like this sublimated uh, intellectual experience that is very pleasurable, you know? Yeah. Um, so, do we start with the history of sexuality, volume one, and talk yes. about Foucault a bit? Uh, yes, we have to, because Foucault is basically the answer so far to all of these problems I have been having. And, like, yeah. I picked up history of sexuality because I love the idea of a massive scope of philosophy that covers thousands of years of history and yeah. brashly and like almost like unscholastically summates them into uh, his sort of, of thinking and mm. I also find that Foucault is one of the most like misunderstood yes. thinkers ever. <laughs> yes definitely and when I was reading this book I was thinking about how much his uh, theories uh, especially regarding power and knowledge have been completely misunderstood and misused over and over again and still are and uh like when people talk about uh they they always like conflate what he what he what he says about power with uh with what he's actually like avoiding to say like when he's when he talks about power for instance he doesn't say that power comes from top down it's not the state putting power on the citizens or um the teacher putting it on on the student but but rather like power is a relation so it it's between so many different subjects and um yeah so he's he's been used and um like yeah if you read any book about oppression 
post-colonial stuff, you'd see like Foucault is just put there and used there in, in the wrong way. Even uh, there are like some Arab uh, thinkers like Joseph Massad, who was inspired by both uh, Foucault and Edward Said. The idea of the genealogy of history that is at work here in this book, he, he would use it to, I don't know, like he's trying to talk about homosexuality in the Middle East, but uh, instead of supporting like homosexual rights, he would say, no, like it's bad to label your yourself as a homosexual because that's that's against what Foucault is saying um, like don't come out of the closet don't define yourself as a homosexual uh, like he, he would make it as a I don't know conspiracy or whatever but with Foucault there's nothing that is bad versus good mm -hmm. he's just outlaying all of these relations and forces that produce different kinds of sexuality he's not saying this is bad and this is good Yes, exactly. Or he's not like, yeah, he's not putting out an ethics or a morality of how to do things rather than he's just like studying all of these different relationships. Right, because he is ideologically misemployed by both the right and the left and the yes. left who like use him for like Marxist critique that kind of goes yeah. nowhere and is uh, unfaithful to his original intention or it's mm -hmm. characterized sort of by people on the other side, if you want to describe people like that, where they imagine oh. that Foucault is like this monstrous, like BDSM terrorist <laughs> who denied HIV AIDS and then died of it while fisting children in like Tunisia. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like exactly how they say it. And while we are talking about this, there's a great scandal about some... Yeah. I, I forgot wh whose book it was that made the yeah. accusations, but they um, cited him as a pedophile and described um, yeah. a bunch of Tunisian children uh, running mm -hmm. after him and screaming, Take me next! Which... I suppose yeah. I suppose I'm supposed to find like diabolical and evil, but I kind of just find very amusing. <laughs> like yeah, imagine like him just walking around, and then these kids are like, "Take me next." It sounds like a scene out of Solo, honestly. But like the the children in Solo don't even speak. Yeah, but there was uh, actually another article that uh, was uh, published a few days ago, which refuted. Um, the allegations, but it said in the in the in French in the title, uh, Michel Foucault was not a pedophile. He was seduced by African teenagers who are like an eight. <laughs> so it's just worse, you know, like more colonial stuff. But you know, um, it's better than him being a pedophile. But I, again, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> no, exactly. I don't give a I'm fuck. I'm sorry. Because he's dead. But that's <laughs> like, he's, he's dead. Like, he's dead. why did this, if, if this guy really cared about protecting these children, he would have done something earlier. Yes. If, if there's something that was happening. But because, right now he's dead. We, yeah. No, sorry. I, I, I just think it's so ridiculous. It's like, he's dead. Yeah. No harm. He can do no harm because he can make no yeah. more action. And perhaps like <laughs> you can find ideological problem with his thinking or you can suggest it engenders some negative cultural force but 
no one is going to die because <laughs> like no one is going to be hurt by him now because he's dead so i don't care and yeah the the whole idea that uh, if you read someone's uh, writing who did something bad then you'll be inspired by like their evils in their lives no like Foucault was the most private person ever he refused to answer any questions about his private life mm-hmm. when when he was alive and he really said like the intellectual should not be uh, like his private life should not be in the center he's just a very um independent uh agent who's just trying to uh, outlay problems and he's not even trying to give solutions he's just talking about what's happening and how to approach it correctly so which yeah. is to me the absolute best sort of philosophy because yes what is most rewarding about even just literature and film and art in general is not being given the solution, but being presented the problem and being asked to yes. make of it what you can. Yes. And yeah, most people now, when they watch a film or read something, they're just trying to get at the answers and mm-hmm. to get at the, the identity politics of the work itself. So if they read in this like, we both read uh, The History of Sexuality, Volume 1. It talks a lot about children's sexuality. So I, I swear one of uh, my my Twitter followers, he's, he's also a good writer, he said that one of his students uh, wrote that uh, this book advocates for pedophilia. I'm like, how? He's just talking about children's sexuality in 17th century and how it was like studied by... Uh, the school and the church and the medical apparatuses it's not advocating for pedophilia <laughs> yeah so, it's crazy but any they'll levy any accusation they can at him and I, I think it's because he kind of gets grouped in with the rest of the post-structuralists or whatever as a mm. I don't even know why people are so upset about it to be quite honest I tried to do some research into it and I, I know Palia, who I also respect and really mm-hmm. enjoy her writing, she mm-hmm. kind of has a distaste for him because uh, she mm-hmm. characterizes him as having, like, a, a problem with abandoning all culture and, like, deleting it and suggesting that language uh, doesn't have meaning and is mm-hmm. only, like, expressive of will. But anyone who's actually read through history of sexuality mm-hmm. will see that he is greatly concerned with large systems of culture. Completely. Right from the beginning, yes. So um, I don't get what the fucking fuss is about, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> I don't know. I don't give a fuck. I, don't I give just a like fuck. him. I do too, and he's I find hot. myself very aesthetically charmed by him. Yes, he's hot. Exactly. <laughs> like, I once photoshopped his picture wearing a leather pants. <laughs> it feels right. I, uh, and I memed it, and I said, yes, daddy. He's hot. Like, the guy is intense. He's so intense. Like, the way he moves his hands, his eyes. He's such an intense person. And yes, and the way he charming. writes is hot, too. Yeah, definitely. It's Which so is why I am prose. also just so shocked that Polya dislikes him because her writing also has that sort of, like, jackhammer, extremely, like, dominant sort of presence on the page. And reading History of Sexuality and having him forcibly like rip back each layer to uh, reveal yeah. what he's trying to say is like uh, very much an erotic experience. Definitely.
definitely agreed yes yes it's like stripping the like just saying what's what's wrong with how i mean the, the book was written in uh 1978 i think mm-hmm. or 1976 in the 70s when you know the the general discourses were about uh, sex liberation uh you know um like say everyone should be fucking and that that way we would you know break away from the bourgeois uh like restraint and uh, it's like somehow revolutionary to fuck and to like liberate sex and have so many diverse sexualities but uh, he he's trying to respond to this uh in this book by and also there's this uh, hypothesis of repression uh, in the beginning where you know there's this idea that uh, before the 17th century he's talking specifically about western civilization so before that uh, everything was you know it was a sexual freedom everyone was happy but then suddenly we have like sexual repression and prudeness and no one should talk about sex and um you know silencing any conversation or mentioning of sex and the you know the family and all of that stuff so he's trying to say no like from 17th and 18th and to the 19th century um we've actually been more uh, in the Western civilization, there has been more focus on sex and sexuality. And uh, he, he tries to explain what he means by sexuality, because until now, like when you ask someone, what is sexuality? It's really hard to define it. Right. But yeah, but, for, but, but, but for him, like sexuality is just the, um, like, the the effect like it sexuality is some some kind of like something that gets produced when different discourses are acting on subjects or institutions or units so for example when you have the family unit and you have uh like medical discourses controlling how the family uh the the, the sex life of the family birth rates uh sexuality of children whether they should masturbate or not uh schools also being very focused talking about like how sexuality of children should be um what else uh the church itself uh the pastoral um what does he call it the penance yes and uh, like the the laws against sodomy as well and yeah. the um prevention of homosexual sex acts among the other yes. perverse behaviors yes and uh, the 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 confession act too like confessing to every kind of fantasy one has to absolve oneself from sin so he's just saying that on the contrary um we should not think about repression and negativity and prohibition and law like we should more we should look more at the profilating discourses around sex and how they form sexualities different sexualities yes that's so for him such like a perfect yeah. like, explanation of the entire book <laughs> <laughs> yeah for him for example homosexuality it's not something that is essential like you're not born a homosexual there is homosexuality in the west is a historical construct yes exactly by all of these different discourses because that's all that um 
sexuality is. It's like it's it's an act of of production, and it's a, and this is sort of where like the post structuralism comes in. I think is that he imagines that um, sexuality and the idea that it was repressed is that it actually was was never repressed. It was just sort of transfigured into what we now come to recognize as sexuality, which is um, codifying mm-hmm. it, making rules about it, constantly discussing it and building structures and systems wherein it can be regulated. And that that mm-hmm. is not an act of, of repression, but is actually sort of a larger way of provoking sexuality in the minutia of everyday living. Yes. There's even a quote where he says... Uh... We must abandon the hypothesis that modern industrial societies ushered in an age of increased sexual repression. We have not only witnessed a visible explosion of unorthodox sexualities, but, and this is the important point, a deployment quite different from the law, even if it is locally dependent on procedures of prohibition, has ensured through a network of interconnecting mechanisms the profilation of specific pleasures and the multiplications of uh, disparate sexualities. Um, yeah genius so so it's 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 interesting to to look at it that way yeah and i i would have never thought about it before and he has a a tendency throughout the book which is that he will sort of introduce an idea like the um victorianism like sex repression is how the introduction begins and as he's writing it and explaining it i caught myself without knowing really what the book was going to start arguing to me i thought how true it was until he stops you and then clarifies that that's exactly not what you're thinking and that's one of like the most artistic and kind of breathtaking parts of the book is that all of this discussion of sexuality happens for the 130 pages that constitute the bulk of the text where you're reading about nothing but the discourses and there's always the nagging question of actual like sex and fucking and it never comes to you in those pages and you're always thinking about it until he reveals in literally like the last four pages of the text that it's a deliberate work on his behalf to almost sort of illustrate the entire concept by manifesting it in in the book of if that makes sense like in the way that he yeah, describes yeah. like how discourse around sex is actually kind of sexuality in itself like the way that sex isn't present at all in the book until the last two pages and then it emerges right there is the exact same fashion it's, it's very artistic i think Yes, uh, I love that about this book. It, it's crazy. Like I would read and then I would think, oh, these are the prevalent ideas that, for example, the bourgeois class is the one that sets out all the, all of these, you know, rules of modesty and they're trying just to control the lower classes. But then he's like, but, but the bourgeoisie were really focused on sexuality because they had all of these rules which produced sexualities, different sexualities. And he said that, um, like uh, the idea that okay, the bourgeoisie is trying to control the lo- the lower classes sexually is is wrong because it started with the bourgeoisie. They would have uh, all of these like um, you know doctors, teachers, uh, all of these different um, apparatuses which somehow control how how the sex like like they're obsessed about 
creating and maintaining a certain kind of sexuality. So he says like later on, the, the lower classes would, would, would like these, um, you know, forces of control would reach the lower classes. But it, it began, you know, uh, profilations of sexualities began with the bourgeoisie. So I, I thought that was really interesting and like different than what I expect and know. Yeah, I, uh, I thought I thought that whole section was really fascinating, too, because it, it, you know, Foucault doesn't give you an answer as to what is to be done with this information, but to sort yeah. of try and gesture at that on our behalf, I, I think if you look at what's going on in the contemporary moment with, I mean, it's sort of the obvious target, but with OnlyFans and with, like, the... Um, extreme yeah. commodification of sex like it is really yeah. sterile and uncomfortable but it is actually just kind of this new transfiguration of, of sexuality mm-hmm. into even more like starkly codified and rule-ridden systems yes definitely um definitely uh, as you're saying it it, it puts this for new form of sexuality, let's say only fan sexuality. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I I don't know much about only fans. I've I've never researched it. I have an aversion to it, but I don't know why. Um, it's a it's a good think... instinctual aversion, I think. Huh? It, it's a good instinctual good... aversion to have is one to only fans, I think. Yeah, I just find the idea that every like they just promote it as anyone can do this. You know, you just can take pictures of your holes and put them on the internet and get money from you know you don't know who's looking at them. In a society that proclaims that they are against pedophilia, that they are against exploitation of women, mm-hmm. that they are against 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 all this stuff. At the same time, you are like giving this platform to teenagers to make money, which is, I mean. Sex work has been there forever, I know, but it's, I don't know. Well, this kind of, of sex work, I think, is very remarkable in comparison to the rest of it because it, yeah. it is really working to create a sexuality and not sex, you know, as, as Foucault describes, like a, a discourse mm. of sexuality. And what mm. it is is like an inaccessible like image of oneself, like it's a whole, like you said, but it's not mm. one that can ever actually be interacted with. It just exists on, mm. on the screen. And yeah, and of fragmentation. Course, like, of the yeah, it's fragmentation. And of course, porn is similar, but I, I find at least that like porn has like the artistic capacity to communicate yeah. theme. Like it has the ability yeah. to make emotion, whereas like deliberately making a faux transparent window into your whole is like a completely disastrous discourse of sexuality and and it also gives this because right now anyone who like follows any online account they think that oh oh, i'm close to this person now just because oh she's hot uh if i talk to her like if i dm her no it's done you know uh i like they they have this uh I hate this word, but parasocial relationship, let's say, mm-hmm. like they feel this closeness to the person. So OnlyFans only gives you this illusion of closeness with someone. Um, because, yeah, we are used to text people and talk to them and get the stuff for free, nudes or whatever. But, you know, you're selling this kind of intimate moment, but it's an illusion of an intimate moment somehow. So, yeah, it's it's really complicated. What kind of 
it's interesting to think what kind of uh, subjectivities would arise from this, how, how people would change out of this. Are we becoming worse? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I think there's a, a wonderful moment in the Foucault and those back pages I, I was um, mentioning where he quotes D.H. Lawrence specifically, and he writes that yeah. there has been so much action in the past, said D.H. Lawrence, especially sexual action, mm. a wearying repetition over and over without a corresponding thought, a corresponding realization. Now our business is to realize sex. Today, the full conscious realization of sex is even more important than the act itself. Yeah, so just realizing it just taking it as a, uh, taking it in as knowledge rather than right that's what it means yeah i think that's exactly it is taking in as knowledge and experience yeah rather than actually doing it right because that's all sexuality is like if you ask someone to describe sex i mean most heterosexual people will describe <laughs> it as penetration and what have you but um i would yeah. say that almost all of the sex I've had in my life has been non-penetrative and is like, yeah, it's, yeah. and it, it, sex is created by sexuality is what Foucault ultimately exactly. sort of argues. And I, yeah. I find yeah. that you can make anything sex yeah. that way. And what a wonderful thing to have. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I was talking with Louise on the other podcast. She was talking about cyber sex and she thinks that cyber sex is real. Like, you know, if you're just sexting with someone that it's somehow it has a real layer to it. Um, yeah, there's that's the whole point that there's no one thing that is sex, that sex for at least in the in the way that it was, um, you know, how, how like he narrates it in the book that sex is somehow a secret. He says this word a lot that we are trying to construct all of these discourses around. And, yes, a uh, my God, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's all this of this blurring at, at the secret is has led us to where? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's led to here, and yeah. we are digging at it furiously. Like he he says something, and he talks about it very like suspiciously. He's like, okay, so you guys are against children exploitation, and you say that children don't have any sexuality. So why are you spending all of that time making all of these medical studies about it, making all of these forms of control? Why are you building these schools that separate boys and girls if you don't believe that children have sexuality? And I found that like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a slap in the face because all, all of yeah. these like structures are uh, allegedly being put in place to prevent children's sexuality or what else have yeah, you. Yeah. And they yeah. are actually just recreating it and forming it in exactly. literal physical architecture that you can go see and touch in the world. Yeah. And uh, he talks about like how psychoanalysis somehow, um, you know, took away from the illusions that were dominant about like sexuality and depression and stuff like that but uh what i i wanted to say is that regarding children again i mean or the formation of sexuality it's what it's these events that happen around us that form our sexuality the discourses our relationships with our like families he talks about the family and he, he says that there's no such thing as like uh like there is uh like family is not a against sexuality because family produces so many sexualities 
by the interrelations of the parent, the child, the mom, the father, all of that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about Francis Bacon. I was watching a documentary about him the other day and like his whole paintings and his whole like sexual life was informed by this by his early days when you know he he was a homosexual and he was gay it's weird to say he was a homosexual he was gay and and his father like didn't really like it like he was 12 and uh, he 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 like they had a horse stable and uh, he used to let the boys in the stable whip him because he was uh, gay and then uh, Francis Bacon started sleeping with the boys and telling them to whip him. And he became like this really extreme masochist. And then uh, his father introduced him to his friend who's like older than him. And like uh, thinking that his friend, you know, would, uh, you know, talk to him, make him better. But then he escaped with that guy to Berlin and uh, he became this uh, teenage, teenage masochist in, in Weimar, Germany. And all of his paintings are informed by this, like, disfiguration of the body. And, uh, like, he, he would paint his boyfriends uh, uh, with him on the paintings. And, you know, yeah, his paintings really reflected deeply, like, the sexualities that formed in his life. So, yeah, the idea is what I'm trying to get at is families. Uh, instead of thinking about the family as this place that... Um, sterile and has no sexuality it's actually like it's full of sexuality it creates it it like constructs our sexualities in a way or sexual painting gay and even know where to begin i was thinking i would come up with a slick transition and and say something yeah. about family discourse and everything but i no, let, let's 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 set the visual tone for the people imagine a girl in a brightly lit uh yellow apartment and the bathroom is uh, <laughs> painted in red and she just wakes up She's dancing at the beginning, right? She's dancing in her lingerie and just, you know, being happy. And then she wakes up and she hates her life. (laughs) (laughs) Goes through this, like, uh, some kind of anxious, hysterical, uh, you know. Mere gazing calamity, yes. Yeah. Like, she's, she, I don't know what she's trying to do. And then we, we learn more about her. We start knowing more about her, that she's an artist. She's a painter. She, she's some kind of a famous person somehow. Yes. A novelist, an artist, a novelist, an artist, everything is so bright. The colors are so chromatic and beautiful, but she has the most, uh, like she expresses so much pain, you know, and anxiety from the beginning. She goes to the bathroom to pee, uh, and she's just looking at her face in a shattered mirror below her feet, and she just wants to die or something. <laughs> I will not say it's my birthday. I would not say it's my birthday. Yes, that was the line. We're, of that course, talking line. about Sonoshion's anti-porno, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, which I only saw for the first time last year and have in less than 365 days seen five times and shown to oh numerous people because it 
hit me so hard when I first watched it mm. that I am still reeling from it, and it has instructed so much of the way I, I view sexuality and yeah. everything I incorporate in the world, and um, I'm really excited to talk about it with you today. Me too. It, uh, like when you, I didn't see it before you told me about it, and I, and I saw it today. It was really intense to watch it, especially after reading The History of Sexuality, but it was intense to watch it. I don't know how can I say that I relate to it too much, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe we can just uh, summarize the plot for the people so they would know what we're talking about. Yes. And so... maybe talk, talk, you can you can tell us about the director, his history with film, like the genre that he's working in. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that Sono Shion is like a well-known sort of like a faux exploitation Japanese filmmaker who most people know for love exposure or for Suicide Circle, which are both great films in their own right. And... Um, Anti-porno comes pretty late into his career and is a part of the uh, Roman Porno Reboot Project where mm-hmm. um, several directors were hired to emulate films in the Pinkuega style, which is mm-hmm. where in the 70s and 80s, mostly in Japan, a lot of uh, independent filmmakers were given money to create uh, pornographic films for companies like Nikatsu, and mm-hmm. they had short run times about... 70 minutes and they were given a budget mm. and the one of the few stipulations is that the there had to be sex at every certain juncture there had to be nudity mm. every um 12 minutes or so and uh, sono shion who is really well known as like kind of an ag- aggressive and um sort of like um, an enfant terrible in Japan, uh, he was offered to participate in this project and anti-porno was his submission. I love that. And uh, it's called uh, Roman Porno, which is like uh, the genre is romantic pornography. So I think uh, Roman Porno Mm -hmm. is like the specific um, sort of company that was making these movies. And then it's like a larger part (laughs) of the the Pinku Ega genre. Okay. But it has numerous uh, names, so anything you call it is basically right anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love the title of the film, Anti-Porno. Yes, because they, they asked him to make a porn film and he made anti-porno. <laughs> he made the most anti-porno. It's not uh, It's not against porno, but it's like a porn film that is not a porn film, which That's is something exactly that I right. love. Yes. Like, it, it's full of sexual scenes, beautiful scenes, but it's it's more about the... Uh, sexual forces and relations between and tensions between the different uh, players in the film. Yes, because the film mechanically proceeds exactly as uh, what is required of the director, which is that there is nudity and sex and rape uh, about every 10 minutes or so. And the every figure in this movie is beautiful and Mm -hmm. awe-inspiring and the a uh, lead actress that Tomite Ami is her name. I love her. Oh my I God. love her. I love uh, her performance so yes. much. She was a former trainee for a idol group called AKB48, which is one mm. of the biggest idol groups in Japan that has mm. uh, dozens of members, mostly like 16 and 17 year old girls who uh, perform kind of like male appeasing numbers. And I have my own affection for them as like sort of like chaotic Dionysian uh, mm. like feminist monster sex creature mm. Um, mm. but she was really disenfranchised with it and uh, ran oh. away to make films and this is uh, one of her breakout roles 
her performance is from the start it's so beautiful breathtaking like it's yes without her performance the movie would not work because no uh well as we'll explain that the film is entirely on soundstage with very limited actors on screen at any given moment never more than like five or six really and yeah she is present throughout the movie and mm. without her acting the movie would crumble to pieces yeah that's funny because uh maybe after we introduce the plot i'll just make this comment that the, in the entire film uh we find out that she's actually like at the beginning we see her in her apartment just you know waking up naked going to the bathroom talking to herself having this some kind of existential crisis or i don't know just living her day by being herself and just like dancing screaming talking crying watching dressing up wearing colorful clothes um um you know watching a scene which is like supposedly porn and uh, telling telling the guy to fuck the girl harder and stuff like that and then mm -hmm. just goes and vomits which is part of the thing that she does and then we find out that she's actually acting in a film like she's being like it's a film inside the film somehow. Someone is directing a porn inside the film. And they keep telling her that her acting is so bad. Her performance is so bad. <laughs> I, and, and I'm like, what? Like, I, she's, she's uh, amazing. Yes, exactly. And I guess we'll, we'll use that to explain the plot of yeah. the movie. But she basically in this... Um, staged pornographic film that they're allegedly making she's interrupted mm. by her assistant noriko who she proceeds to dominate and bully yeah. and um her assistant is constantly begging to become a whore a baita as yeah. she says and yeah. Yeah. they have yeah. a, a dynamic in which we see that kyoko as played by tomite omi is completely in power um, but as soon as the director calls cut it, it switches and uh, exactly yes and uh, Nyoko would the other uh, the woman who's supposedly her assist assistant in the scene they're uh, staging be becomes the one who's like she's she turns out to be this like this famous actress or something and she's just telling her how bad she is and like that she's a dog and she should just you know be on her like all fours and stuff so yeah they it flips immediately Yes. And what what caught my attention is that when they redo the scene again, where Kyoko is the one who's dominating, you just feel all of this tension. Like she she's at one point she tells her, "What will happen when the scene ends? Will you again like start abusing me?" And I it's felt that so hard. Yeah. Yeah, because you really end up relating with the Kyoko figure even if it's unclear like where her performance begins and ends like you mm. feel so strongly for her when she's having like these like depressive explosions of like vomiting and pissing and like weeping yeah. on the toilet in her monochrome apartment that you do feel a jeopardy for her that is really yeah. emphasized by that cut that the director screams God, it's bad. <laughs> Fuck this she shit. Fuck this shit. Uh, are you a virgin? Like he he takes her to the back backstage and he's like, "You're a virgin. Like you can't react well to sex. Like you have to do a sex scene properly." And she's like, "Yeah, I can't do it." But she's obviously terribly terrified. 
Yeah, and it's um, <laughs> the whole experience. You, any other director would kind of stop the conceit there and sort of mm-hmm. have like the the big explosion of the movie be that it w- was just a movie. But what Sono Shion ends up doing instead is he mm-hmm. ends up moving through this character's history in scenes mm-hmm. that are constantly warbling between being like a vignette on film or something that's actually happening in a perceived reality. And we yeah. see her entire history of her uh, dead sister, of her mm-hmm. difficult relationship with her sexual parents, and uh, yeah. the loss of her virginity and eventual yeah. running into wanting to be in a pornographic film as like a form of yeah. liberation we we see that all happen in a really artistically made uh sequence that kind of takes up the second half of the film yes we start yeah we start understanding more like the the back history of this girl and uh as you said about the sexuality of her parents which could bring us to the to Foucault's history of sexuality. Like she would, they're sitting on the table, they're having lunch with her parents or dinner or whatever. And she's like, uh, I'm not supposed to talk about sex, but why do you guys have sex every day? I see you <laughs> having sex, but I'm not supposed to have sex. So there's this question of, you know, like how parents would protect their children from being exposed to sex and not doing sex and stuff, but they are sexual beings, they're having sex. And, you know, I'm not, there's no proposed like solution to that problem. Um, as you said, like she, she tries to, uh, she, she goes to become a porn actress uh, after she gets raped, probably just to like, I don't know, find a way to channel her sexuality and explore it more. And maybe um, this is exactly what happens. Like instead of liberating her, herself sexually, She's just like exploring all of these different tensions um, in her life through uh, enacting the the porn itself by being one, one at one at one point dominating her assistant, telling her assistant to be on all fours, to lick her leg, to uh, uh, to get raped by the lesbian with a to, strap on. God, yeah, these lesbians are so <laughs> so fierce. Yeah, and <laughs> she even t- tells her assistant to, like, she's putting on makeup because she's, like, this big, famous celebrity in the porno who is interviewed by, you know, this magazine. She's, like, putting makeup on. Her assistant is there, and she's like, I don't want to put blush on. It's not a strong color. Can you slit your wrist? And I want blood because blood is, like, this strong color. I didn't love that scene so much. Yeah, and then when uh, she takes it from from her from her dog assistant, yes. she then says, "No, this is disgusting," and she gets this it from one of blood. the lesbians this is, instead. This is dog bloods. Yeah. <laughs> and this is also mentioned in Foucault's book. He talks about blood a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the end, uh, he talks about like the idea, of course, you know, like the whole discourse is about medicine and control of race and reproduction. So the idea that there's some kind of blue blood, uh, you know, different kinds of blood that are, you know, better than other bloods. It's, uh, it's, it's also prevalent here. Absolutely. But I love the scene for the aesthetics of it. But also, also it is very tense with all of these different relationships. And then like once the director says cut, Kyoko is back to this student and the assistant is actually better than her, you know, artistically or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the whole thing 
flips. Um, yes, and the film, like Foucault, declines giving you an answer, and yeah. it climaxes in a faithful reproduction of the first scene, but in darker lighting and with the role switched where Nordico is playing the part Kyoko was originally playing, and the mm. scene is extremely tragic, and the entire tone has shifted to a very disturbing place, and we get my ultimate favorite scene in the movie where after it breaks away from the reenactment of that scene uh we -hmm. get kyoko um giving her diatribe on the table with the cake Mm. yes in which she explains exactly what has been going on so i mean if someone was desperate to make perfect sense of this movie she tells you (laughs) and uh then slams her face into the cake, decrying... Oh, God, that scene is so good. So good. Decrying Japanese civilization, the yes. way that sexuality is talked about, the role of women. Um, yes. It begins dunking paint on her from the skies. Her parents, like, fuck next to her in yeah. mud paint. And she yeah. screams, where is the exit? The exit. Where is the exit? The yes. Toko! <laughs> I love it. Oh my god. <laughs> and the yeah. first time I saw that, um because the film only lets you ask where is the exit and does not show you where it is. I yeah. sat with my laptop on my mattress and just had to sit and stare for about ten minutes after the credits ended because mm. it is uh extremely apocalyptic and horrifying but i i found the onslaught of paint and the writhing around and the the score to be this amazing sublime moment of taking all of this like pain and horror of sex and like Mm -hmm. just blowing it up for what it is yeah god that scene is amazing because like she keeps slamming her head in the cake time and time again and then you would think like the way the way the the paint falls from the ceiling it's pink red paint it's just as if her head exploded you know just from mm-hmm. slamming her head in the cake it's a very strong scene and yeah there's this speech that she keeps repeating on and on during the film which is like uh we have freedom of speech but uh and we have freedom but it's uh, like no woman in japan is free no one, no woman is able to use this freedom properly and how can we use it? And is there freedom or not? So there are there are so many problems and questions that are raised by the film. It's very similar to like how Foucault puts it. There's this uh, final quote in his book where he says, we must not place sex on the side of reality and sexuality on that of confused ideas and illusions. Sexuality is a very real historical formation. It is what gave rise to the notion of sex as a speculative element necessary to the operation, um, to its operation. We must not think that by saying yes to sex, one says no to power. On the contrary, one tracks along the course uh, laid out by the general deployment of sexuality. So it's just, if we say yes to sex, it doesn't, there's no, it, it doesn't uh, liberate us immediately. We enter into a cobweb of more interesting dynamics that, you know, cause violence on us, cause us joy. Like there are so many moments of joy in this film where she's mm-hmm. just erupt in dancing and singing and, you know, her sister just playing the piano and 
and you know the bright colors so i i love that like it's just not a, a commentary on the negativity of it all but rather um you know showing it as a journey somehow. yes absolutely because to kind of speak more generally about the movie now that we've set the plot down i i find that there is a depiction of sex here that is one that completely understands like the joy in it and the pleasure in it but also mm -hmm. is recognizing that in terms of escaping the jar that's been placed on you because that common image of the lizard that's grown too big for the jar yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's sex isn't going to be able to break the jar for you and her attempt to shatter the confines of the sexual discourse that her family has put on her she attempts to do it by appearing in this pornography and like flinging herself into the forest with that boy and yeah it leads to nowhere and there's no exit yeah i like this i like this idea there's no exit somehow <laughs> no i do too it, it really stuck with me and yeah. So did the image of the lizard that's grown too big for the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, another yeah. Like, a thing that I keep thinking about, which I notice every time then immediately forget about, is that the first shot of the movie is the only shot not in a soundstage, and it's of the diet building in, in Tokyo where the government works. Oh, really? Yes, and every single time I see it, I forget about it, and this is the only time I've managed to remember. <laughs> is that the scene when she's... Uh... It's the exact Dancing? first shot before she's uh, even on screen. Oh, okay. And it's just the slow zoom in on the government building for like two seconds before it cuts to her uh, flinging herself around the cursed apartment. What do you think that means? Well, obviously the movie has a lot to say about systems of sexuality and like what it mm. means to have to exist in them and trying to either escape or manifest or harness them in any way. And the movie is, I think, considering the rest of his career, which he is always considered to be, like, very anti-Japan and, like, very anti-Japanese cinema, like, mm. I think it, it, it does kind of um, seal in, like, his, like, seething idea about mm. it. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing film. It's like an intense interrogation of sexuality without being too intellectual about it. It's very... God, it just it touched my heart so deeply. It made me, it moved every fiber in me. It's just very strong. Me too, like, because I, I, I yeah. feel like this. Like, I know that I am, like, really enmeshed in, like, these, like, discourses of sexuality and that, like, yeah, I continually, like, keep behaving in, like, kind of shocking ways to see, like, if I can't, like, yeah. push the borders of the glass jar, but I'm still <laughs> trapped in it. Yeah, I think about this a lot. Like, I try also to somehow erupt from, you know, all of the uh, things that try to constrain me and be like, oh, I just want to do this. I want to break free. I want to get on the other side and see what other people are experiencing. But then uh, the other gazes outside that are trying to hurt you sometimes, to consume your beauty, to consume your energy. And like, you know, how she performed in that pornography. Like, she was very honest authentic she would say things like you if you are a whore you have to be pure inside to be a whore a real whore she would say like really intense things and like her performance was strong and then the director would say cut you're bad 
And I think this is, uh, this relates to like how we express ourselves versus like how the world perceives us, perceives mm-hmm. us. And we are in this constant, uh, negotiation with like how we are perceived and how we express. And sometimes this expression hurts us. Um, but yeah. I yeah, to that's so gorgeous. And another thing that ties exactly in with what you're saying is that she is constantly trying to show within like the set of the pornography, which is like this like nightmare reality that she can't get out of where she keeps trying to show the moment she lost her virginity in the, in the woods. Yeah. And every time she shows the film that like shows her getting pounded in the, in the woods, it's she's not there. Yeah. 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 And uh, I don't know how to explain that. I guess my my thought about it is that one of the ways that she tries to break out of the jar is by, like, trying to make, like, her sexuality, like, corporeal and, like, a, a thing you can see and witness. Mm-hmm. But um, even, like, that act and, like, the constant reappearance of the cameras, like, when she's, like, showing the moments of disgust in her own life and her own problems is that showing it is no escape either yeah and uh it could be as you said like this moment was not witnessed by anyone like no one no one saw it except for her like she's she was the only one like she's not being able to uh show it to others because maybe they should not see it because i don't know like they would not respect it or they would not understand the experience that she went through because it's it's her own experience somehow her like own particular experience like uh, we say that losing your virginity is something universal everyone should should do it or everyone would lose their virginity but everyone has a different experience with how they lose their virginity and uh, it changes their lives and psyche in different ways and uh, maybe also uh, maybe it's a commentary on the fact that we shouldn't think about sexuality in that manner we shouldn't think about it in the terms of when do you lose your virginity and how Mm-hmm. And the, like the whole idea of the virgin is a construct itself, you know. Um, I think it could be a commentary on that too. Oh, it absolutely is, and I I think that this movie like lends it, itself really well to like discussing how, in the same vein as Foucault, like these like discourses like appear and mm. begin to manifest exactly like what we experience like sex as is like only as like these concepts because like virginity Mm. is like another matter of sexuality as discourse and not like an actual real thing and of course everyone who like does lose their virginity if such a thing is to be called into existence like that's something you feel and have an emotion about but Mm-hmm. It's such a, it's such an anti-real thing at the end of the day that it doesn't have any meaning yeah. when you say it. Yeah, but maybe in, in in Japan or Eastern countries, it has this weight to it. Like the virgin is valued as a, you know, as this object that is very valuable because she's a virgin. Yes, and uh, that's something that caught my attention this time too, because when she lies on the mm-hmm. floor and the translation is says i'm a virgin but she says which can either mean i'm a virgin or i'm a young girl oh so you're exactly right because the idea of virginity is like so linked to the experience of young women that yeah the word equates itself that way yeah 
And uh, even when when she says that to the guy in the forest, he's like, okay, you're a virgin. I will just take it brutally and you'll, fe- you'll remember every moment of it because it's going to be like so painful and he like rapes her. So it's just also this masculine idea of, oh, she's a virgin, then wow, like she's a prize. And this is like very prevalent in Eastern communities. I'm not sure like if it's, if I'm saying, if it's right in Japan, if it's like that in Japan. Oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I watched another like Japanese uh, sexploitation film. It was on Mubi. It's called Blue, Blue Something. And it's hmm. incredible. This man, okay, so this like family uh, is just a man and his wife and his daughter. And he is like trading. There are so many scenes of like the trade trade market in Japan at that time. I think it's in the 70s or 80s. And the, the man is in debt. Like he's so much in debt. He's crying in the middle of the night and he goes to like hang himself. And he's just crying nonstop and he wants to kill himself. And his wife is like, no, don't kill yourself. We will find a solution. The next day, the, the guy who lent him the money, he's like, uh no i will not extend your loan you have to pay but if you don't want if you want i can extend your loan but i have to fuck your wife now next to you like in the next room (laughs) (laughs) and then he goes and he fucks his wife and the scene like it's shown in full like we, we see her moan and enjoy it somehow i don't know why and um and then it's like a it's so weird what happens after that like the, the uh, his wife ah so this guy asks asks the wife to sleep with his son too just for the loan just to pay the loan and his son is like some kind of you know a guy who's uh dis- like has a disability or something like mm-hmm. not very and then after that she goes out in the street very you know disoriented and she gets hit by a car <laughs> And yeah, it's nonstop. Like it's just relates uh, class and and sexuality. The entire film. The daughter also is asked by the same man to sleep with her, and she becomes a high end prostitute at the end of the movie, just to pay that debt. And it never stops. Like this debt is never over. So which is the I same think, idea uh, that this is suggesting too. Yeah. The yeah. debt never ends. You still can't get out yeah. of the fucking bottle. Yes. I found love. 